I had uh, concluded last week with the idea that Yaakov Avinu needed a special statement about the fact that the Rebbe was going to offer him a special divine protection. Because anybody who enters the Klippos, anybody who enters the domain of the Sitra Achra, and of course that's exactly what Yaakov was about to do, since he was about to go to Lovan to fulfill the union of Mashiach ben Yosef, which Esav had failed to do. Anybody who goes into that domain needs a special shmirah, a special divine protection by the Rabbani Shalom. Therefore, the Rabbani Shalom told Yaakov that he will be with him, he will guard him. Now, it is interesting to note the entire Pasuk where it says that the Rabbani Shalom will offer this protection to Yaakov. Because it, say, it seems to say in that Pasuk that the Rabbani Shalom will protect and guard Yaakov in five different ways. Or rather, the expressions that are used to say that the Rabbani will protect Yaakov is made in five different ways. It says, And behold, I will be with you. That's the first way. Then it says, And I will watch you or guard you in all that you may go. That's the second expression, Shmira. Then it says, and I will return you back to the land, which is a third expression of Shmirah. Then it says, I won't forsake you. That's another expression of Shmirah. The fourth. Then it says, Until I will have done what I have spoken concerning you, which of course means another kind of Shmirah. The question then is, why do these five expressions, which basically convey the same idea of divine protection, why do you really need them? What do they really mean? Is there mere redundancy in this Pasuk? The answer is that they refer to divine protection afforded to Yaakov and his descendants at five different times. The Revolution is prophetic revealing to him that not only will he guard and protect Yaakov Avinu when he goes into the Klippos in the domain of the Sitra Achra to be involved in the union of Tikkun of Kilkul to be involved in the union of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef but also when his descendants also will go into the Klippos when they will also go in the domain of the Sitra Achra and be involved in the union of the Tikkun of the Kilkul when they will be involved in the union of the Mashiach ben Yosef the Rebbe tells Yaakov, after revealing to him that the Jews will engage in method B because they will fail in method A, he tells them the following, that he will guard and protect them even then when they will have failed method B, or rather method A. In other words, even when they go into Method B, he will offer them divine protection, especially when they also must enter the Klippus or the domain of the Sitra Achra. In other words, the expressions of divine protections or Shmira that the Rebbe mentions to Yaakov is not only concerning Yaakov, but also concerning his descendants when they will engage in Method B and therefore be forced many times to enter the Klippus or the domain of the Sitra Achra. Thus he tells Yaakov that Behold, I will be with you. In other words, I will be with you when you go to Lavan. This first statement of Shmira is addressed to Yaakov himself. When you go to Lavan, I will be with you. Then it says, And I will watch you 
I will guard you in all where you go. In other words, what the Bereshim is now saying in the second expression of Shmir, I will guard you, or rather, I will guard your descendants wherever they go. Wherever your descendants may go, I will guard them. That second phrase of Shmir refers to the descendants of Yaakov. And what does this refer to? This second statement of Shmira, of divine protection, refers to the first exile of the Jews in Babylon, in Babylonia. In other words, this Shmira, this divine protection, which the Russian will give the descendants of Yaakov, will be when the Jews will have to be dominated or subjugated under Babylonia. The next Shmira, the third expression of Shmira, where it says, and I will restore you, I will return you to this land. That expression refers to the Jews in the second exile. In other words, I will return you to this land, that second statement of Shmira, or divine protection, refers to the second kingdom which will dominate the Jews, which of course is Persia, Poras. Even the phrase is incredible because that is exactly what happened. Ezra came back to Israel with many, many Jews while the Jews were under the domination of Persia. This phrase reveals to Yaakov, in other words, the phrase which says, And I will offer you divine protection to such an extent where I will bring you back to Eretz Israel, refers to the second exile of the Jews, the second nation or Shibud, the second nation that would meshabed or dominate the Jews, which is Persia. And it states exactly what would happen under the domination of Persia, that the Jews would get back Eretz Yisrael. Because it says, And I will return you to this land, which is exactly what happened in the second exile. The Jews went back to Eretz Yisrael under Ezra at the time of the Persian domination. Therefore, we see that this rephrase reveals to Yaakov what actually will occur 1,500 years before it actually happens. The Rosham is Masnabe, prophecies to Yaakov in the third expression of Shmira, which refers to the second exile, that I will return you to the land of Israel, which is exactly what happened at that time. Now, the fourth expression of Shmira, which says, I will not forsake you, this refers, or this means, for I will not forsake you, this refers to the third kingdom, which dominated the Jews, namely Greece. That's what the fourth expression of Shmira, or divine protection, refers to. It refers to the third subjugation or domination that the Jews had to undergo, which is the domination of Greece. And the last expression which says Adasha Imosisi is a until I will have done what I have spoken concerning you, which is an expression that God will offer divine protection to the Jews for a long time because that's what it means, until I will have done what I will have spoken concerning you, whenever that will happen, and that could be for thousands of years, that fifth expression of Shmira or divine protection refers to the fourth kingdom which dominated and continues to dominate the Jews. And that is none other, of course, than Rome, who is really Edom, who is really Esau, which is expressed today in modern terms through Western civilization and Christianity. 
Now we know why the Rebbe told Yaakov in five different expressions or phrases that he will give him divine protect, protection and offer, offer him a special guarding. These phrases refer to the different divine protections that the Rebbe offers not only Yaakov, but to all his descendants through all the four Shibud Malchios, all the four periods of exile that the Jews have to go. Because when a person, as I said before, goes into the Klippos, into the domain of the Sitra Achra, in order to bring a Tikkun to the Kilkel in creation, in order to fulfill the task of Mashiach Ben Yosef, he needs a special Shmira, he needs divine protection. And that is exactly what the Rabbi Hashem promises or prophecies to Yaakov. This is exactly what will happen. Now, it then says that Yaakov awoke from his sleep and said that the Rabbani Shlolem is surely in this place and I have not known about it. In other words, it says in the Pasuk, Vayikat Yaakov Mishnasoi, and Yaakov awoke from his sleep. Vayoyman, he said, Ochenish Hashem Bamokim Hazer, surely or truly God is in this place. Venoichi Loyodoti, and I have not known. Vayiro and Yaakov feared greatly. Vayoyman, and he said, Manoira Hamokim Hazer, how awesome is this place? Ain Zer, this place is nothing more. The house of God. And this is the gate or the entrance to heaven. This is what it says in the Prophet. In other words, what Yaakov said was that the Rabbanu Shalom is certainly in this place and he did not know about it. And Yaakov was then in awe concerning this fact. And then he said, how awesome is this place? This place is only the house of God and this is the entrance or the gate to heaven. Now, at this point, I would like to ask two questions. Why does Yaakov say that the Rabbani Shalom is in this place? And he uses the name which identifies God, Yudke Vavke. And next he says that this place is the house of Elohim, using the name which identifies God, Elohim, not Yudke Vavke. Why the change in the name which identifies God? In other words, it should say the place, this place is the house of God using the same name of the Rabbani Shem as before, which is Yud Kei to be consistent. So the question then is, why is there a change in the name which identifies the Rabbani Shem from the name of Yud Kei to the name of Elohim? It should be consistent. If it says, surely this is the place where God resides, Yud Kei so it should say that this place is nothing more than the house of God, Yudke It should not change and use another name. That is the first question. And the second question is, why does it say this is the entrance to heaven? What does that mean to teach? Now, I just want to note, of course, that there are many pshatim, many mephoshim that deal with this pasuk and the, the entire idea of the prophetic dream which Yaakov experienced. And they have their own versions of what it means. But I am asking, in any case, what does, and this is the entrance or the gate to heaven, really mean? Now, when Yaakov awoke, he instantly remembered what the prophetic dream that would, was revealed to him by the Rabbani Shalom, what it was. And what the Rabbani Shalom essentially told him is that he conducts himself 
in other words, the Rabbani Shalom, conducts himself in this world not only with the attribute of justice, in other words, where he, he gives man an exact account or reciprocity of what man does, but he also conducts himself with the attribute of Anogus HaYichud, that attribute which overrides or is more, is, uh, in which the Rabbani Shalom can override all uh, principles of, of the universe. And, which means that even though the Jews must massacre the creation, they have to bring the creation to what's called tikkun akloli, the general correction or rectification. And only then will they merit oil haba. In other words, this is their specific task. Now, if they will not do it according to their initiative and their free will completely, then the Rabbi Shalom will assist them in doing their task by providing another method for the tikkun of creation. And he will force the Jews to engage in this method to massacre creation. This is what Anagas HaYichud is, and of course this is what we have been speaking about Anagas HaYichud many times before. But of course, in the end the Jews will have been successful in completing their task by their own toil and their own labor. This is what must be. Thus they will truly earn Oilam Haba by their own efforts. Ultimately, of course, justice must prevail to achieve Oilam Haba in order to massacre the idea of Namnik Sufa. That is the entire reason why the universe was created within. That if a man earns what he will receive in Oilam Haba, he won't feel Namnik Sufa or any sense of loss of self-worth or self-respect, any sense of shame, because he has earned it. He is completely responsible for the situation which he has in Ilm Habba. Therefore, to remove the feeling of Namdik Sufa, this loss of sense of self-worth, the Rebbe makes man earn his reward. Therefore, this universe must accommodate itself ultimately and primarily to the principle of Mishpat. Therefore, God conducts himself in that respect in the conduct of justice which is Anogasa Mishpat. However, Anogasa Yichod assists the Jews in doing their task by giving them another way. But the Jews ultimately must be the ones who do the task of being Masak and the Bria. There is no other way they can get Olam Habba. This then was the essential message that the Rabbani Shalom communicated to Yaakov. And it is concerning this revelation that Yaakov comments upon when he awoke. He talks about, or that's what he really comments on after he woke up from having the prophetic dream, it's about this essential message, which of course would make sense, because as soon as somebody would get up from such a dream, it is obvious that that what he says right after the dream is obviously in context with the dream itself. Let us see what this means. Yaakov wakes from his sleep and says, Surely the Rabbani Shalom, Yudke Vovke, in other words, the Rabbani Shalom in his attribute of Anhogas HaYichud is in this place, because that's what I really realize now. Surely the Rabbani Shlom, in his attribute of Anhogas HaYichud, is in this place. Now, this place does not refer to the place that he slept in, and it was this local place, but refers, according to this internal plot or story, to the physical world which is Olam Hazer. So therefore, Yaakov says, surely or truly, the Rabbani Shalom conducts himself according to the attribute of Anhogas HaYichud in this world, and I have not known it. This is what Yaakov has said. Now, there, of course, there are 
Pshatim, the Amaforshim that learn Hamokam Azeh refers to this place where he actually slept and had a dream. However, I am learning this place means not this place, this local place, but this place as referring to the entire universe, Olim Hazer. And that is what Yaakov said, that the Rabbanishlun conducts himself with Anoga Seyichur in this world, and I have not known it. Because that's exactly what the major message of the Rabbanishlun to Yaakov was. Now, not that Yaakov did not know the attribute of Anoga Seyichur of the Rabbanishlun, because this was certainly taught to him by Yitzchok and Avram. I'm not saying that Yaakov did not know of the attribute of Anogos Yichud, that therefore he should be surprised that Anogos Yichud is that which the Rebbe conducts himself with in Eilim Hazer. But the concept of this particular conduct, the idea of Anogos Yichud, is incredibly profound in all its facets. The Rebbe showed Yaakov in this dream, this Anogos as it applies throughout human history, especially Jewish history, as we saw that he said that not only will I provide a special protection for you when you go to Lovin into the Klippus, but I will uh, provide a special protection for all the Jews, your descendants, as they go from one Shibud Malchus, from one domination of one kingdom to the other. In other words, he saw, he revealed to him the Anhoga as it applies throughout human history. He revealed to him how encompassing and pervasive is Hanhoga Sayyichud in enabling creation to reach its intended perfected state, which is something that Yaakov did not realize before, how far extended, <coughs> how much it comprehends the Anhoga of Yichud of the Rebbe to make sure that the universe reaches its intended perfected state. Not only that, but the Rebbe allowed Yaakov to see the awesome complexity of this conduct of Anhogasiyichod, and how every single event, every single act that the Rabbanu does, is only to perfect creation. That's the only reason why the Rabbanu does anything, either is either as Anhogasam Mishpat, which means to give a person an esoyin, so therefore he may earn Olim Habo, and thereby correct creation. Or if he doesn't do that, Hanogas Yichud, which allows a person to massacre creation in another way. In other words, the Rosham is only interested in the tikkun of this Bria, nothing else. And to that effect, he has been Machadesh. He has initiated two different kinds of activities, conducts which he does. And this is what he showed Yaakov, that every single act or event that the Rosham does is only to perfect creation. And that's really what is meant by every single thing that the Rabbani Shem does, the tav of it is only for the good. And tav is tikuna kloli. What is the good? That, of course, which is the intended perfected state of the Bria. That's what it means by everything which the Rabbani Shem does is for the good because every act which God does is determined or motivated by, motivated by one idea, one concept. And that is that the universe should achieve its ultimate perfected state, which of course means that the hester of the yichud of the Rabbanisham should be no more. That the Rabbanisham should magala his yichudoi throughout all creation. Now, in addition to that, of course, he allowed Yaakov to perceive to an infinitesimal extent how every event, every phenomena, every act of all living beings 
is really intended to bring the world to the Tikkun HaKloli, or rather, must bring the world to its intended perfected state. In other words, not only does the Rebbeinu whatever he does, is determined by the idea of Tikkun HaKloli, that the universe must reach its intended perfected state, but not only that, but every act, every phenomena that every living being does must bring the universe to its intended perfected state. Even Rishoyim, who are Bercha, who choose evil, are merely used by the Rabbanishlam to massacre creation, unknowing to them, of course. Therefore, the universe must proceed in that direction. And I had mentioned previously, that's called Hanhogo, or rather, the Yichud uh, Hanhogosoi, that the universe must go in the direction that God wants it to, which is Tikkun HaKloli. That one has no choice. You have a choice in being good and evil. But you must be Masak in creation, even if you are evil. The revolution will use your evil act to bring a Tikkun to creation. Of course, you do not get any reward for that because essentially you are doing an evil act. It is the Rabbanishlam who, thank God, takes your evil act and doesn't allow it to destroy creation, but to massacre in creation. But in truth, everybody must massacre in creation, even the Rishoyim. And of course, we see amply how Esav is bringing about the Tikkun of creation by chasing Yaakov to go to love him. Therefore, he can complete the task of the Kilku or the Tikkun of the Kilku creation. And therefore, of course, um, bring down the entire concept of the Mishichos of Ben Yosef. Now, therefore, Yaakov calls the Rebbein by the name Yud Kevavke, which refers to the Rebbein in his role of conducting himself in the Anhoga or in the conduct of Anhogas Hayichod. In other words, after having been shown by the Rebbein the awesome profundities of Anhogas Hayichod, which Yaakov did not realize before, Yaakov says, truly or surely, the Rabbanu conducts himself according to Anhogas Sayyichud in this world. That's what he means. Ochein, truly or surely, Yish Hashem, God in his attribute of Anhogas Sayyichud, which is what he revealed to me essentially in a dream, Bahamokam Hazer, is in this world. He's talking Ilim Hazer. And it is important to note that even though Yaakov knew of Anhogas Sayyichud, because he certainly learned the ideas from Yitzchak and also from Avram. It is one thing to understand this intellectually and be taught this by man, and it is an entirely different matter to be taught the comprehensiveness of this Hanhogo by the Rabbanishim himself. That's why he's so shocked and says, Ochein, surely... Now I really understand and see it, because not only do I understand the comprehensiveness of this idea, but the Rebbe has been a gala to me, and when God reveals something to you, then the certainty of that idea is much more profound than, of course, if a man is reveals that idea. That's the idea of Ochein Yesh Hashem B'Mokom Surely the Rebbe in his attribute of Anogos Yichud, truly is in this place, in this world, and then Yaakov says, We are Nechi Loyodoti, and I have not known this. I never realized how awesomely complex, how pervasive, and how hidden from the eyes of man Hanhogas Yichud really is. And you should know that Hanhogas Mishpat is revealed to man, but Hanhogas Yichud is concealed from man. We do not see how the Rabbanishim uses the acts of man himself 
to bring about a tikkun akroli, even when the man never intended that this act should go for good, but rather that it should go for evil. We do not see this. This is completely concealed from all eyes, including the eyes of Rishoyim. Now, to continue. Then it says, Vayiro, and he was exceedingly, he was afraid, uh, and Vayoyma, and he said, Manura hamokmazeh, how awesome is this place? What is Yaakov saying? Well, Vayiro, not that he was afraid in terms of a threat, but he was afraid in the sense of awe. He was re- reverentially awed by his comprehension of Anhogas HaYichud, Vayiro, and he was, he was in a tremendous sense of awe, and he said what he then truly understood. How awesome is this place? In other words, how awesome is this place because of the Anhogas HaYichud that takes place in it? How awesome is Anhogas HaYichud that the Rebbeinu does in this world. That's what Yaakov meant. Now, it is important to know that what Yaakov understood of the mechanism of the Rebbeinu Shalom's is infinitesimal to what there really is to know, to what really the Rebbeinu does to bring a tikkun to this Bria. And the truth is that no man can fully comprehend it. Even Moshe Rabbeinu, in his attempt to fathom the conduct of Anogas Yichud, it seems like this is always the fascination of true Chachomim and Sadikim to understand Anogas Yichud. But even Moshe Rabbeinu, in his attempt to fathom, to understand the conduct of Anogas Yichud, when he asked the Rebbe Islam, because where do we see that he tried to understand it? Show me your ways. And Moshe Rabbeinu wasn't interested in seeing the ways which were understood by everybody, but understand the ways which nobody can understand. Tzadik v'ra'aloi, why is a righteous man dealt with evilly? V'rosh v'toivloi, why is an evil man dealt righteously with? In other words, who is given good. That was Moshe Rabbeinu's attempt to understand Hanogas HaYichud, because that's certainly not Hanogas HaMishpat. You don't see justice here. There's obviously something else going on. The Rebbe is conducting himself when he does this to a tzaddik or Roshan. Obviously, he's conducting himself in Hanogas HaYichud, which is tremendously concealed from the eyes of man. So Moshe Rabbeinu wanted to understand the key. When do you do what you do? Why do you do what you do? Tell me. So even Moshe Rabbeinu, in his attempt to understand the conduct of Hanogas HaYichud, was given only an infinitesimal understanding of this attribute, because that is really all man can really perceive. In any case, this is what Yaakov is referring to when he said, how awesome is this place? How awesome is Oilam Hazer that Al-Hoga Sayyid operates within it and actually does what it wants to do and is concealed from the eyes of man. That's incredible. That's what Yaakov said. He then says that this place, Einzeh, this place, or rather this world, is nothing more than Elokim, the house of God. What does that mean? He says that this place is nothing but the house of the Rebbeinu using the shame of Elokim that signifies the role of the Rebbeinu as a judge. That when the Rebbeinu adopts his role as a judge, then the name Yud Kevav, rather the name Elokim, identifies that. 
Thus Yaakov says that even though this world is pervaded and encompassed with an yichud of the Rebbe which I now understand, but this world is still primarily a world of justice, where a man must toil and labor to earn Olam Habo. And Anogas Ayichud will assist the man. And that is really what the Rabbi Hashem revealed to him when he said, Onuchi Hashem, I am God, Yudke Vavke, Anogas Ayichud, but I am Elokei Avram or Vicho, Velokei Yitzchok. I am the God of Avram, your father, and the God of Yitzchok, using the name of Elokim because even though Anogas Ayichud assists the Jews, in being Masak in creation, it can only go through Anogas HaMishpat, they must earn Oilam Habo. Thus, this is a world of Din, justice. Base Elokim, the house of God, Elokim in the terms of the fact that the Rosham appears as a judge. This world, this Mokum, is really a house of God in his role as a judge. And only through true earning and merit can one enter Olam Habo. Therefore it says, And this is the entrance to heaven. Din, not Chesed. Therefore this is the gate or the entrance to heaven, which means to Olam Habo. In other words, Yaakov says, This world is the house of the Rebbe in his role as a true judge administering Din or justice. And this Din, is the entrance to heaven Oilam Habo. That's what he says. This is what Yaakov understood essentially from the prophetic dream that the Rebbe revealed to him. Thus Yaakov uses the name of Elohim, which signifies the role of the Rebbe as a judge, administering justice in this verse, in this passage, because he means to say that this world is ultimately a place where the Rebbe judges primarily and demands true merit of an individual, and that the individual himself must labor and toil to earn Olam Habo, even though the Rebbe Shalom at the same time conducts himself with an Sayyichud to assist that individual to earn Olam Habo. Thus, Din or Justice is the only true entrance to heaven, which is, of course, Olam Habo. We now understand what the phrase Vezeh Shah Hashemayim is, and what it really means. Now, we now understand what the hidden meaning of the prophetic dream was, and we see how this concealed meaning is totally consistent with the internal theme, the inner plot, which is really going on, which I have been mentioning for all the previous shuram. We also perceive what Yaakov really meant after he woke up, and how this too is consistent. The statement that Yaakov himself says is really consistent with the concealed inner theme of what is going on, of course, in Bracious. Let us now continue. Yaakov then vows that if he returns from Lovan without harm to his spirituality, and of course, if the Rabbanishlam will help him, then he will serve the Rabbanishlam again at this place. He then proceeds to go to Khorn where Lovan lived. This is the completion of the uh, of the uh, of the journey of the uh, story of the journey. Now, at this point, I wish to answer the question posed earlier as to why was it that Yaakov felt the need to go to the yeshiva of Aver before going to Lovan. If you recall, Chazal say 
that he learned there for 14 years after leaving Beersheba and before going to Lovan. Only after this intense learning period did he leave for Lovan's house to take a wife from his daughters. And it's interesting to, to note, as I mentioned, that Yaakov learned there so intensively that it says Vayolim by Mokmahu that he lodged or he slept there, but he did not sleep by the Shiva of Eva. That's how intensively involved he was in learning. Not that he didn't sleep, but that he never prepared himself to go to sleep. It means he would put his head down and sleep. But he didn't actually make preparations to go to bed. That's what it means that he didn't go to sleep. But of course he slept. Only when he got, after finishing the Shiva of Eva, when he was on the way, that he actually went to sleep and laid on the ground and put a stone by his head and went to sleep. That's how intensively Yaakov learned for 14 years. Now, the question then is, of course, is why did he feel that he had to go to love to the uh, yeshiva of Eva to learn so intensively before going to Lovan? Why didn't Yaakov listen to his parents right away when they told him to marry one of Lovan's daughters? This is the question I previously asked. Now, the answer is that Yaakov was well aware that Lovan was a very evil, deceitful man. You should know. When one is about to enter a Russia's domain, a Russia like Lovan, which is also the domain of the Sitra Akhra, as I had mentioned previously, then one must arm oneself with the only weapon that can withstand and overcome the onslaught and the influence of evil and deceit. There is only one weapon. This weapon is the Torah. Only by absor or absorbing a vast amount of terror can one hope to withstand the tremendous influence of evil. Even Yaakov had to immerse himself far more intensively in terror to withstand the now evil that he would get by Lovin and Lovin's environment. There is no other way but terror. Therefore it says, Barossi Yitzhahara, I created, the Rebunisham says, I created the Yitzhahara. Barossi Torah Tavlanle, and I created the Torah, which is a weapon against the Yitzhahara. That is the only weapon. Even God testifies to that. Torah is the only weapon against the Yitzhahara. In other words, he who possesses Torah knowledge has a fighting chance. He who does not possess Torah knowledge is lost and finished when he enters the domain of evil or the Klippus. It is important to mention that in Torah knowledge itself, there are different aspects of Torah knowledge. For instance, halacha, that's one area of Torah knowledge. But you should know that the aspect of hashkofa, which is the understanding of the design of creation, and of course why God created the world, how he conducts the world, and so on, and the understanding of why history proceeds the way it does, and so on, only Rather, the aspect of Ashkofa is probably the most potent weapon against the Yitzhahara in Torah itself. That is the essential weapon against the Yitzhahara. That is why Yaakov suddenly felt the need and the urgency to learn Torah, to counteract the evil influence of Lovan, his home and his city, and the Sitra Akhra, one must know Torah in a very great measure. Apparently, Yaakov felt that all the Torah that he had acquired from Yitzchak and Avram and his own diligent studies 
was totally insufficient and inadequate against the influence of Dovan and the Eight Sahara, which is really amazing. That even though Yaakov had acquired so much knowledge from Avram and from Yitzchak, his father, he was 63 years old when he left his father. So you can imagine what kind of great Talmud Chochem Yaakov was. Afa became. Still, he felt that this knowledge which we, he had acquired is insufficient, is not adequate to properly prepare himself for the entrance into the Klippus, the entrance into Lovan's house, which is the domain of the Sitra Akhra. He's got to learn much more Torah. So he sat 14 years and diligently learned Torah. And one could almost say that he learned 14 years one year was for himself and the other 13 was for the 13 children that he would get to protect them from evil influences. In other words, he learned the ideas of Torah that encompassed not only what he had to do, but what all the Shvatim, 13 in number, would also have to do. This total knowledge of what all the Shvatim plus he himself would have to do constitutes an understanding of Torah because it is Klai Yisrael as Shvatim. And Yaakov, of course, that is Masak in the Bria. So therefore, he tried to understand the entire Tikkun of the Bria, and therefore he spent 14 years, one year for himself and 13 for his children, in order to understand what the true Tikkun of the Bria is. And of course, uh, and therefore that is why he learned 14 years. However, in any case, he learned 14 years without interruption to prepare himself for the entrance into the Klippus. Now, at this point, I would like to dwell on this idea which I mentioned. That Torah is the definitive and only weapon against the Yitzhahara and all other evil, evil agents that serve him. I would like to just dwell on that particular idea. How, precisely how, does a Torah knowledge and perspective enable one to combat evil influences and the Yitzhahara? How does it do it? This is the question. And obviously it does it, and therefore Yaakov employed it. And the Rabbanisham himself says, Barasi Yitzhahara, Barasi Torah, Tavlan How does Torah protect one against Yitzhahara? Wherein lies the awesome power of Torah? In order to understand how Torah does it, one must first understand how the Yitzhahara successfully entices one to sin and do evil. Then we can see how Torah knowledge counteracts these, the, these strategies of the Yitzhahara. You should know, there are basically two strategies which are used by the Sultan to achieve his goal. What is the goal of the Yitzhahara? What precisely did the Yitzhahara want? What is his objectives? Notice, what is his goal or objectives concerning mankind? And the answer to that is that there are two. The first one is to make you believe that you are a true independent being that has real control over your life and that you are responsible for all your successes. In other words, he wants you to believe that Yesh that besides Rebansham, there's also you. You are a true independent being that has a real shlita over what you want to do. That you have a real control you have real potency in terms of being a real cause to do whatever you want to do. And of course, in other words, he wants you to believe Yeshayid Mavadoi and to actualize 
that, or rather, th this is the um, the first goal. The second goal of the Eight Sahara is that he wants you to make, he wants to make you rather go against the rotten of the Rabbi which of course is usually Chatoim or sinning, which is nothing more than the translation or the actualization of the belief of Yeshed Mavadoi in behavioral terms. That is what the Sitra Achra or the Yetzirah really wants. These two ideas. That he wants you to believe Yeshed Mavadoi, that you are also somebody, and he also wants you to do what you want to do. And this is the translation of the belief that you are somebody, an independent true being, into behavioral terms. In other words, he wants you to believe Yeshoid Mavadoi and to actualize that by doing your own will, which do, means doing sins or chatoim. Of course, if Enoid Mavadoi is the greatest truth, then Yeshoid Mavadoi is the greatest lie. That is the basic goal, to swallow that lie. Now, this is the objective of the Sitra Achor. To achieve this, he employs two fundamental strategies. All human beings possess a framework of reality, and they behave according to this framework. This is a fundamental psychological principle. This reality framework consists of what, what beings exist, number one, how they interact with one another, if at all, number two. Notice this is what the reality framework consists of. Number three, what can change in this existential system? And number four, what is desired or valued, and therefore you want to achieve and possess it? And number five, what is undesirable, threatening, or just plain meaningless, and should be therefore avoided or re and rejected? These ideas constitute the reality framework which a person automatically follows. Man behaves con continuously and consistently according to his reality framework. Now, if you would understand a person, if you want to understand a person's motives, why he acts the way he does, why he behaves the way he does, then understand his reality framework, and that will give you an understanding of the person. To change a person fundamentally and permanently, then alter his perception of reality, his existential system. That is the way to do it. He will then act in accordance with his new reality framework. That is the way to really achieve a lasting, permanent effect on an individual if you want to change his behavior. Just alter his reality framework, that's all. If a person saw the truth of a spiritual universe, that man was created by a god for a specific purpose, and if he understood how to achieve this purpose, if all this became part of his reality framework, then he would immediately involve himself with the demands and truths of that framework, because that is the nature of man, to follow what he perceives to be reality. Therefore, the first strategy of the Yitzhahara is to make sure a person remains ignorant of the true reality framework. Since Torah is the book or the Sefer that accurately portrays and describes this reality framework, <clears throat> then he must at all costs prevent one from learning Torah. Torah is his greatest opponent. Torah is his greatest deterrent. And the Talmud Chochem, therefore, is his greatest enemy. 
Ignorance and chayshech, darkness, are his greatest allies. Therefore, you will always find that you have the greatest yitzhara when it comes to sit down and learn. Because a knowledge of true reality, which is what Torah gives you, is the worst thing for the yitzhara. He can only function in darkness or ignorance. In summary, if a cardinal psychological principle is that man will always consistently and continuously behave in accordance with the reality framework he perceives, and if Torah clearly and accurately presents the true existential system, then the Eight Sahara at any cost must keep you ignorant of Torah. This is the first strategy in order to achieve his two goals. In other words, if he has to, he will make you rich. He will involve you in all kinds of preoccupations and obsessions. He will get people to, uh, to involve themselves with you so they will distract you. He'll do anything. Don't sit and learn. Because once you learn, then you perceive true reality. And by human nature, you want to act in accordance with that perception. Therefore, true perception of reality is the greatest deterrent to the Sitra Akhra or the Eight Sahara or the Satan. Therefore, he will try to keep you ignorant of the true reality. And since Torah represents the true reality, he will try to make sure that you don't learn. Do anything else. Don't learn. I will continue next week in terms of what the second strategy is. I had mentioned last week in review that there is a cardinal psychological principle in that man will always and consistently and continuously behave in accordance with the reality framework he perceives. Now, if Torah clearly and accurately presents that true reality framework, that true existential system, then the Yitzhahara at any cost must keep you ignorant of the Torah because he doesn't want you to perceive reality. Because what he wants you to believe is Yeshed Milvadoi and therefore you should do what you want. But the reality that the Torah tells you is Enig Milvadoi and therefore you should do what the Rabbani Shlom wants, the Kim of the Rotten of the Rabbani Shlom. Therefore the Yitzhahara at any cost doesn't want you to understand or perceive this reality system. Therefore, he wants to keep you ignorant of Torah because Torah presents this true reality system. That is the first major strategy in order to achieve the two goals mentioned <coughs> previously. Now, there is a second strategy <coughs> also which he employs. <coughs> and that is that he gives you the ability to deceive and to delude yourself even when true reality confronts you and stares you in the face. Thus, an individual can, when he wants to, conceal and distort the truth or reality, so he may consequently deceive and delude himself about what true reality is, so he can see a reality which is compat compatible rather than confrontatious with his needs and drives, and he therefore can go ahead and fulfill it. In other words, a man has the ability to suspend the faculty of the intellect, to suspend the functions of the intellect, which would normally perceive truth and reality, and then instead, by interfering with the functions of the intellect, he then conceals and distorts reality.
So he may delude and deceive himself thereby into perceiving a reality which allows him to completely fulfill all his needs and drives, all his urges, desires and wishes. This ability to interfere with the intellect and to deceive and to delude yourself about what really reality is all about. <clears throat> In other words, this ability to interfere with the intellect's ability to perceive truth is called a defense mechanism. Although man uses this ability to interfere with the intellect for averting fear and anxiety that comes from a consciously intolerable situation, its primary purpose is to allow man to sin, to do a chet, and to do what he wants. In other words, a defense mechanism's primary purpose is to allow man to fulfill all his urges when a clear perception of reality would serve as a deterrent to the fulfillment of needs and drives. Thus, first the Eight Sahara tries to keep you ignorant of terror, which presents the true existential system, the true framework of reality, and then if that fails, he gives you the ability to conceal and distort the truth by interfering with the intellect's natural ability to perceive truth, thereby allowing yourself to be deluded and deceived in perceiving a reality which is perfectly compatible with your desire to fulfill your urges. That is what the Eight gives you as a second strategy, that you have the ability to actually change the reality, to alter the reality that you perceive in order that that reality should not be negative to what you want to do. If you want to fulfill your urges, your desires and wishes, then you can alter the reality and therefore reality doesn't produce guilt in you anymore or reality doesn't confront or contradict what you want to do. Thus reality perception is no more a deterrent toward your need fulfillment because you are either ignorant of the truth or you have successfully concealed and distorted the truth, one or the other. This is the second strategy of the Eight Sahara, to contend with the deterrent of a true perception of reality. In other words, we've seen that the perception of reality is a deterrent for the Eight Sahara in his achieving his goal which is that you should believe and do what you want to do. What deters a man from doing that, or what, what is an obstacle to the Yitzhahara, is that reality perception. Therefore, the, the Yitzhahara tries to keep you ignorant of reality, to keep you ignorant of Torah, that's the first strategy. And the second strategy is that even if somehow you come to learn Torah, he gives you a mechanism where you can mamish distort the ability that you have to perceive reality. You can alter that reality. And all of a sudden, you see a different reality. And the reality that you see is perfectly compatible with what you want to do. And not only compatible, not only does it not contradict what you want to do, but many times it encourages what you want to do. That is a second mechanism or strategy that the HR has, and that is called a defense mechanism. And it is important to remember that a defense mechanism is also used to alter the reality of a negative situation. 
but not a negative situation that disturbs your ability to fulfill your urges, but rather a negative situation which gives you fear and anxiety as a result of some consciously intolerable situation. So therefore you use this very same mechanism, which means that you can alter reality not to see the negative reality, therefore you don't feel fear and anxiety. But the primary reason for this is not for fear and anxiety, which I had stated in previous year. The primary reason for you to have the ability to alter your perception of reality is that you can go and do a sin. That reality will not only not disturb your sinning, but actually encourage your sinning. This, as I said, of, co- of course, yeah. This is the second strategy of the Eight Sahara to contend with the deterrent of a true perception of reality. Now that we know his strategies, we can see how terror is a great weapon against the Eight Sahara. The Eight Sahara can only function in ignorance or darkness. As long as you are unaware of true reality, he can try to make you believe what the reality really is, because you don't know the real reality. So he can try to make you believe a false reality. As long as you don't know the reality of Enoid Mulvadoid, that this is a true reality, he can try to have you believe that Yeshoid Mulvadoi, namely, who is the Yeshoid Mulvadoi? Yourself. Terah tells you what the true reality is, that the Rabbanishlam is Enoid Mulvadoi, and you therefore must do his will. Therefore, by providing you with an understanding of true reality, Terah literally is the most powerful weapon of all, for its truth that the Rebbeinu is Enel Mavadoi, and that you have to makayim the Rotson of God to fulfill His will, is diametrically opposite to the lies or the reality that the Yitzhahara is trying you is trying for you to uh, to perceive, and that is Yeshed Mavadoi, namely yourself, and that you should fulfill your own Rotson. Secondly, terror attacks the very motive of why you distort reality in the first place. You distort reality so it can conform to your fulfillment of your needs without making you uncomfortable. If you would work, therefore, on controlling and reducing your needs, then obviously you wouldn't have to distort the truth. Certainly not to the extent that one does when he is enslaved by his urges and needs. In other words, Torah addresses itself not only to your lack of understanding of reality by telling you the true reality, that ain't movadoi, and therefore you must listen to the Rebbeinu to Makayim his Ratzim, but Torah also addresses itself to the very reason why you alter reality in the first place. It addresses itself to your motive for altering reality, which is the fact that you want to fulfill your urges and needs. Therefore, what Torah says is that Torah tells you to work on your Midas, to work on your negative character traits, which are basically nothing more than the expression of your urges making demands upon you. That is what Torah tells you. That's why to work on Midas, character traits, is so important. In other words, if one does this, if you do work on your character traits, if you work on your Midas, then one has less of a need to conceal and distort reality because you don't have as many urges compelling you to distort reality so it can be compatible to your desire to fulfill those needs. One can thereby perceive an objective reality, not a subjective one, which is generated or determined by the desire to fulfill those urges. In summary then, 
Torah reveals to you what the true framework of reality is, really is, and also addresses itself to the needs and the midos of man, which is the reason why people do not perceive reality correctly in the first place. It tells you to work on taiva, pleasure, kino, jealousy, kas, anger, selfishness by practicing chesed, etc. In other words, it tells you remove or reduce your needs, your urges. Thereby, you won't have to fool, to alter the reality to make it compatible with the urge fulfillment. Therefore, you can perceive objective reality. This is why Terry is the greatest weapon against the Yitzhahara and why Yaakov went to engage in it intensely before he went to Lovan and before he went into the domain of the Sitra Akhra. This is precisely why or how Terry is such a powerful weapon because it, is a, it addresses itself exactly opposite than what the Yitzhahara wants to do. Its objective is exactly opposite to the objective of the Yitzhahara. The Yitzhahara's objective is that you do not perceive reality, and the kim, the fulfillment of God's will. You don't perceive that reality. Instead, you perceive the reality he wants you to perceive, that you are a true independent being from God, and that you truly have potency, and therefore that you should do your own will. Torah addresses itself against that first objective, and it addresses itself against the second objective, or rather strategy of the Yitzhahara, in that you have the ability to alter the perception of reality in order to fulfill your needs, Tira addresses itself against that by telling you to reduce your needs, your urges, the tyrus and the class and the gaiva and the kin and so on. Tira tells you to reduce that, therefore, if I reduce that, I will perceive reality correctly or objectively because I won't be interested in distorting or altering that because essentially if I don't have the urges, therefore I don't have to distort the reality to be compatible to the urge fulfillment. Let us now return and continue with the journey of Yaakov to Lovan in Kharn. He arrives in Kharn where he meets Rochel, who of course is the youngest of Lovan's two daughters, by a well. He meets her by the well. Now, Chazal tell us concerning Rochel and Leah that actually they were twins. Chazal tell us this. In the Seder Oilam Rabbah, there is a certain sefer called Seder Oilam Rabbah, and in there it says that Rochel and Leah were really twins. And also, and that they were also 22 years old at the time that they married Yaakov. Now, the Torah also says that Rochel was very beautiful, both in form and also in appearance. Whereas by Leah, the Torah says that she had eyes that were very tender, or uh, the Enayim uh, or Rachis, they were very tender. The Gemara Baba Basra tells us that the reason why they were so tender was because that Leah, being the oldest twin, thought that she was destined to marry Esav, the eldest son of Yitzchak, and that Rachel, being the youngest twin, was destined to marry Yaakov, who was the youngest son of Yitzchak. This is what Leah had thought. Now, this match was in truth held to be appropriate and to be destined by the entire community in Choran and also by her parents, by the parents of Rochel and Leah. And this is also stated by Chazal. 
When Leah inquired about Asaph, who it seems that she was going to marry, according to appearance and according to the community, and when she was subsequently told that Asaph was a great Russia, that he was a, a thief, a robber, and a great Russia, she at that point broke into tears and she cried continuously and she prayed continuously to the Rabbani Shalom that this should not transpire. That, in other words, that Leah, that she should not marry Esav. Because Leah was in truth a very great tzaddikis, and she was a Nevi'ah, she was a prophetess. So when she heard, of course, that, yeah, that Esav was a very great Russia, she of course became in, immediately very sad and depressed, and she cried continuously, incessantly. And that is why the Torah says that her eyes were very tender. Now, Yaakov, after arriving in Laman's house, agrees to work seven years for Rachel's hand in marriage. This is the agreement that he makes with Lovin. However, he is deceived by Lovin, who disguises Leah and puts her in Rachel's place. Yaakov subsequently finds out the next morning that he married and had relations with Leah, not Rachel. This is what he finds out. Now, of course, Lovin then offers the pretext of why he deceived Yaakov and offers him Rachel if Yaakov will agree to work an additional seven years. He tells, of course, he tells Yaakov that they don't do this in our place, they don't give away the younger before the older, therefore uh, you have to marry Leah first. And of course he tells Yaakov, of course, that if you want Rochel, you have to work another seven years. Yaakov agrees to this proposition, and after a week of marriage festivities, which he has with Leah, he then goes and marries Rochel, and of course works for an additional seven years at Lovin. This is the story until now. Now, at this point, I would like to ask four questions. The first question is, what is the significance about the fact that Leah and Rochel were twins? Other than the fact that they happened to be born as twins. In other words, did they have to be twins? Why were they born as twins? The second question is, that everybody felt that it is appropriate and proper that Leah would marry Esau and that Rochel should marry Yaakov. This is what everybody had felt, which I mentioned previously. The question is, was their evaluation correct? Even though their rationale for thinking this way was purely based on social concerns and considerations, because what is appropriate and desirous in terms of society? That if Yaakov has, uh, or rather if Yitzchak has two sons, and Lovan has two daughters, that of course the older should marry the older, and the younger should marry the younger. Was their evaluation correct? This is the question. In other words, according to the internal design of creation, should Leah really have supposed to have married Esav and Rochel marry Yaakov? Was their assessment correct, even if they had different understandings of why they should be? That's the second question. The third question is why didn't the Rabbanishlam reveal to Yaakov that Lovin was deceiving him and that he was marrying Leah instead of Rochel? Why didn't the Rabbanishlam tell him that to Nebuah and say, watch it, Lovin is deceiving you. Instead of marrying Rochel, you are now marrying Leah. Not only that, but Yaakov himself says later on, right before he's about to leave Lovin, when he's addressing his wives, when he sees that Lovin is no more the same way that he was then before, that Lovin now has obviously much more hatred toward him and the sons of Lovin. So he tells his two wives that if it was not for the fact that the Russian protected him from all the incredible falsehood and trickery of Lovin, 
he would never have survived it. In other words, the Rebbe nullified all of Lovin's deceit toward Yaakov. He made it come out, come out that whenever Lovin tried to deceive Yaakov, it would always come out in Yaakov's favor. So then Yaakov himself says that the Rebbe protected him from the deceit and trickery of Lovin. So then why over here didn't the Rebbe tell Yaakov that he was about to marry Leah? Why then did the Rebbe allow Yaakov to be deceived by Lovin? When the time for his marriage arrived, this is the question. It would seem, therefore, that the Rabbi Shalom wanted Yaakov to marry Leah. Now, you may ask, well, maybe he wanted Leah to marry Yaakov because Leah prayed and cried incessantly that she should not be married to Esau, so therefore the Rabbi Shalom had Rachman, therefore he gave her to Yaakov. But the point is that even if the Rebbeinu listened to the tears and prayers of Leah and would make sure that she wouldn't marry Esau, he could have provided Leah with another righteous person. Not necessarily Yaakov. In other words, Leah doesn't have to marry Yaakov merely to get away from Esau. There are many ways that the Rebbeinu could provide. There are many things that the Rebbeinu could have done that could have happened that would have made sure that Leah doesn't marry Esau. Why does she have to marry Yaakov? So therefore the question is, why doesn't the Rebbe Shalom, of course, reveal to Yaakov what is about to happen? That he's about to marry Leah. And it is not sufficient to answer in order, because he wanted her not to marry Esau. Because there are other ways that that could have been avoided. So that is the question. The fourth question is, why did the entire marriage of Yaakov and Leah have to be with such hester, through such concealment? No one but Lovan, Rochel, and Leah knew of what was about to take place. If the Rebunshim wanted Yaakov to marry Leah, which seems to be the case, then he certainly could have given Yaakov the desire and the inclination to marry Leah. Why does Yaakov have to marry Leah unknown to Yaakov? Why does this marriage have to be preceded with Hester? That it should say in the Torah, Vihinei he Leah, and behold it was Leah which is clearly Hester. <clears throat> now, the answer to these four questions really becomes obvious if we re recall the underlying theme of which we have been learning until now. <clears throat> and of course, the answers of course, to these questions are consistent with the entire theme. When Yaakov and Esau were born, if you recall, they were both equal in potential greatness in terms of spirituality. They both could have become equally great in Ruchnius. Both had the power of Tikkun, if you recall. Both had the ability to correct or to rectify the Hester in the Bria, both the Chesan and the Kilkul in the Bria. Not only that, but both had the Neshama of an Ov. And we know the Neshama of an Ov really is a Shirish. In other words, that an Ov has a soul that kind of a soul which really is a root to many souls. That many neshamas can come from the neshama of an Av. <clears throat> so therefore, both Yaakov and Esau both had this kind of neshama. We also know <clears throat> that both emanated from the attribute of the Rabbani Shalom called Tiferes. That they both were predisposed toward this mido, this characteristic. Yaakov, however, was from the right side of Tiferes. And Esav, of course, was from the left side of Tiferes. That was the difference. <clears throat> but they both were from the same meter of Tiferes. 
Avram, of course, was from Chesed. Yitzchak was, of course, was from Vuram. But Tferes really had two. It was split. Yaakov was from the right side of Tferes, and Esav, of course, was from the left side of Tferes. Now, since they were both from the same attribute of the Rebbe therefore they were both twins. As I had mentioned previously a long time ago, in the previous Shulam on Yaakov and Esav, that they were twins to reflect that they were really similar in Ruchni's biggest state. Both were to be obvious to Shvatim. Both were to be patriarchs to tribes. And both, of course, were to be part of the nation called Klai Yisrael, which, of course, is involved in carrying out the will of the Rabbani Shlom to bring about a tikkun to creation. So we see, therefore, that they were both equal in all respects. The only difference was that only their respective tasks were different. Esav was assigned the task of subjugating evil. That is called Fiyasura, to war with the Sitra Achra, to combat the Sitra Achra, to go into the Klippos and to war with the Sitra Achra, in other words, to remain righteous even in the domain of the Sitra Achra. And this, of course, is primarily the task of the Mashiach Ben Yosef. And of course, Yaakov had a different task. To him was delegated the task of spreading and promoting ruchnis or spirituality and holiness all over, which we know, of course, is basically, the, essentially, the Inyad of Mashiach Ben David. Thus, they were similar in terms of their constitution, spiritual constitution, but they were different, of course, in terms of the tasks assigned to them. But together, both tasks of both, of both Yaakov and Esav would complete that which is necessary to be completed in terms of the avoid of an of, in terms of what an of has to do. Now, therefore, if we understand this, we now can understand what is happening by Rochel and Leah. Obviously, if both Yaakov and Esav are similar, then of course both Yaakov and Esav had to have wives that also match their spiritual tasks and also would be similar. Thus, Leah and Rochel were twins to indicate their similarity, just as Yaakov and Esav were twins to indicate their similarity. The exact same phenomenon occurred by Yaakov and Esav as what occurred by Rochel and Leah. Just like by Yaakov and Esav, they were twins to indicate their basic spiritual similarity. And the only thing that was different was really the tasks assigned to them. Same with Rochel and Leah, who was to be their wives also. The fact that they were born twins, that expressed their similarity. And therefore, each wife was appropriate to marry their respective husbands. Thus, Leah, who was the older twin, was in reality perfectly matched in spirituality, according to Ruchnius, to Esau, also the older twin. Rochel, on the other hand, who was the younger twin, was in reality perfectly matched spiritually, or Ruchnistig-wise, to Yaakov, who was also the younger twin. Thus Yaakov and Esau, who were twins, had wives, Rochel and Leah, who were perfect and appropriate spiritual complements, who were also twins. Thus Yaakov was destined for Rochel, who was his spiritual complement, and Esau was destined for Leah, who was his spiritual counterpart, his spiritual complement. We now perceive, therefore, the significance of Rochel and Leah being twins, and we see how everybody was remarkably accurate 
in other words, the community in Choron, and also the parents of Rochon Leah, how they were tremendously accurate when they said that Leah will go to Esau in marriage, and Yaakov will marry Rochel. They of course meant this for social considerations, being totally unaware of the spiritual accurateness of their assessment. In other words, they were very correct. Yaakov truly had to marry Rochel because Rochel was his counterpart in terms of the spiritual mission that Yaakov was involved in. Leah had to marry Esau because Leah, of course, was the spiritual counterpart of Esau in terms of his spiritual task. And when the community said that Rochel has to marry Yaakov and Leah has to marry Esau, even though they meant it for social considerations, they were really, in fact, true. Now, we know, however, that something happened. We know that Esau's assigned tasks of subjugating evil was given to Yaakov after he completely failed at this task and instead he became a great Russia. This we know from before, that on the contrary, Asa failed in to do his task, therefore he lost the entire power of Tikkun in terms of the Indian of being Masak in the Kilkun creation, and this he lost it at the time that he sold his Bechira to Yaakov. And Yaakov permanently assumed the union of Ben Yosef, of course, by the brochas that Yitzchak gave him. So we know that Esav lost it. If this is the case, if Esav lost that task, then obviously Leah, who is Esav's spiritual mate and counterpart, Leah, who is appropriately designated to marry Esav, must also go to Yaakov, since he had assumed Esav's task. And that is really exactly what happened. In other words, since Yaakov took over the task of Esau, since he took over the union of Ben Yosef, therefore it also is necessary that he take over that spiritual counterpart or complement that Esau was supposed to get, that wife that Esau was supposed to get. Therefore it comes out that Yaakov, who took over the task of Esau, would also have to marry the wife that was destined to marry Esau also. And of course, since that was Leah, that's exactly who Yaakov had to marry. Yaakov therefore married Leah since she was now his spiritual mate, his spiritual complement. That is why the Rebbeinu didn't reveal to Yaakov the deception that Lovin was per- perpetrating on him. Because he wanted Yaakov to marry Leah. Because that would complete the transfer of the union of Ben Yosef to Yaakov. First Yaakov took the transfer took these Nyonim from Esav, and now we go and take Leah, who remained at Tzadekis, and not like a counterpart Esav who became a Russia. So therefore we had to take on Leah also as a wife. In other words, on the contrary, this must be done, the fact that Yaakov must marry Leah, in order for Yaakov to assume Esav's former task. He must marry the particular woman, that woman who is designated for Esav, who is spiritual, spiritually appropriate for the newly assigned role of the union of, of course, of Ben Yosef, which now goes to Yaakov. We now therefore understand why the Rebbeinu did not reveal to Yaakov the fact that Ace, that Lovin was deceiving Yaakov, even though the Rebbeinu protected Yaakov many times later by preventing the deception that Lovin was about to practice or perpetrate on Yaakov from ever materializing. 
The reason why here he didn't do anything is because he wanted Yaakov to marry Leah, because unfortunately Leah was supposed to marry Esau, and Esau became a Russia, but Leah remained a Tzadekah, so therefore what is she supposed to do? Therefore she must marry that individual who takes over the task of Esau, and since Yaakov took over the task of Esau, therefore of course Leah must now marry Yaakov. We now understand the answer to this particular question of why the Rabbanishlam didn't reveal to Yaakov the deception that Lovin was perpetrating on him. Now, we also now understand, in accordance with this entire thing, that if Leah had to go to Esau because she was the spiritual counterpart of Esau originally, and now she went to Yaakov because she is now the spiritual counterpart of Yaakov, since Yaakov now assumes that role, we now understand also why the marriage of Leah to Yaakov also had to be with tremendous hester, in the sense, tremendous concealment, in the sense that Yaakov was not aware that Leah, that he was marrying Leah, he was not aware that, that Lovin was deceiving him. Why? How do we understand this? We understand this from the principle which I had enumerated quite a while ago in the previous shurim. Whenever something is about to transpire, which involves either of the two Mashiachim, the Mashiach ben Yosef or the Mashiach ben David, entering the Bria or the world, or when matters concerning these Mashiachim, Mashiach ben Yosef or Mashiach ben David, when they become permanently delegated to specific individual individuals, there must always be a great Hester surrounding these particular events. Not many people can know about this. Why? Because if not, then the Sutton, the Sitra Akhra, will also be aware of what is happening. And he will try to obstruct these events from occurring by prosecuting the people involved in judgment, because that is his only weapon. He will try to bring the people who this is happening to, he will try to bring them before the bar of justice in Yeshiva Shemailah, Bezin Shemailah, and he will claim, of course, he will argue that they don't deserve this ascension in spirituality. But we know that the reason why he's doing this is not necessarily to defend his role as one who is, defends the attribute of justice, but we know that he does this, of course, because he will ultimately be destroyed by the two Mashiachim. Therefore, he tries in any manner to prevent the messianic process from proceeding, from progressing. This is what the Sultan does. Because the, the messianic process will ultimately destroy him, ultimately remove his power over the Bria, therefore he of course tries to obstruct that. Therefore, when the Rabbanishlam is about to initiate some idea or some concept of the messianic process, namely in terms of the Meshichan, the Shroshim, the roots of the Meshichan coming down, or any other matter which concerns the permanence of the Inyonim of the Meshichan, which are delegated to individuals. The Rabbanishlam, of course, tries to hide this from the Sitra Akhra. So he shouldn't makatrek, he shouldn't prosecute, and therefore obstruct the entire process from proceeding. Now, just as when Yitzchak was going to give the brochus to Yaakov, and we know what the brochus conveyed, what the significance of those brochus were, they were the permanence of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef. That's what they were. Just when he was going to give the brochus, just as by Yitzchak, when he was going to give those brochus to Yaakov, 
which is the permanence of the union of Mashiach bin Yosef. Just as then it was necessary to con- conceal from Yitzchak himself what was truly happening, in other words, that Yaakov was in reality the one who was getting the brachas, not Esav. Why did that have to be concealed from the eyes or the understanding or the knowledge of Yitzchak? So the Sitra Achra, the Satan, will not know what is happening, and therefore he won't attempt to prevent this from happening. In other words, he won't know that the Indian of Ben Yusuf is being permanently given to Yaakov. Because at that time he could mekatrig and prevent Yaakov from getting those brachas in terms of his role as a prosecutor. So therefore, what the Rabbanishim does is he hides it from the Sitra Akhra, and the way he hid it from the Sitra Akhra is by making Yitzchak, the one who is involved in that act, giving the brachas, unaware of what he's doing. So therefore, just as by Yitzchak, that when Yitzchak was about to give the brachas to Yaakov, he was unaware that this was Yaakov, so as to, uh, to, as to make this entire event uh, happen in terms of Hester, so the Sitra Akhra won't be Makatvig, he won't prosecute and therefore obstruct the entire messianic process from proceeding. So also, when Yaakov was about to marry Leah, which we know would complete the transfer of the union of Mashiach ben Yosef from Esav to Yaakov, because now that Yaakov marries Leah, he now takes away the last vestige of a chance that Esav should be Makalko Modabriya. He now takes away the real entire union of Ben Yosef. So therefore, when Yaakov was about to marry Leah, which would complete this transfer of the union of Mashiach Ben Yosef from Esav to Yaakov, then it also must be hidden from Yaakov. In other words, it must be also that Yaakov cannot know of this. So therefore, the Sitra Akhra is prevented from knowing this. So therefore, he won't be able to prevent this from offering ketrugim or prosecutions from occurring. That is why Yaakov also did not know. Because the event of his marrying Leah is tantamount. It's equal in many respects when Yaakov received the brochus from Yitzchak. There were messianic concepts, events occurring. And just like there was a Hester by Yitzchak in order to prevent the Sultan from being a Katri, therefore also here there was a Hester to the Sitra Akhra because Yaakov didn't know it, and therefore the messianic events could continue to occur. However, if you think about it, there is even greater profundities and secrets going on here. There is something even more profound that we see. Who caused Yaakov to marry Leah? We know what the significance of Yaakov marrying Leah is, that he is now about to totally wrap up the union of Ben Yosef to himself, and therefore to Klai Yisrael. But the question is, who is responsible for this? Who causes Yaakov to marry Leah? Who is responsible for Yaakov marrying Leah, thereby finalizing the complete transfer of the union of Ben Yosef to Yaakov, thus assuring the Tikkun of creation? Who is this? Was it none other than Lavan, who wanted Yaakov to stay longer, so his possessions might multiply because of the righteousness of Yaakov. That's why he wanted Yaakov to stay longer. And he knew that Yaakov would want to stay longer to get Rachel. So what did he do? The reason why he wanted Yaakov to stay longer was, of course, so that he should be more prosperous because of Yaakov's chus. So what does he do? He goes and arranges a deception. And he knows that Yaakov, after he marries Leah, is going to want to remain to marry Rachel. 
So therefore, of course, the righteousness of Yaakov will make him more prosperous. Because Yaakov is going to remain more years to marry Rachel. So therefore, the one who is responsible for allowing Yaakov to marry Leah, and therefore completing the transfer of the Indian of Ben Yosef, of course, is none other than that Rosha, that Ramai Lovan. Therefore, we see, thus Lovan, as the agent of the Sitra Acha, becomes the very instrument to speed the messianic process by enabling Yaakov to marry Lovan in the by, to marry Leah in the first place. That is the real incredible amkus and profundities of how the Rebbeinu works his processes. That we see that the one who caused Yaakov to marry Leah is none other than Lovan, who of course wants, Lovan's motive of course is for his own personal gain, that he should become more prosperous and wealthy, that Yaakov should remain in order to work further for, for Rachel. But of course we really know what was going on, that Lovan himself is the very agent, the very instrument, to speed the messianic process because he enabled Yaakov to marry Leah in the first place. And because without Lovan's deceit, it's very possible that Yaakov would never have married Leah in the first place because that was never his intention. This is what we see. Now, as stated before, this is how Anhogas Hayichud of the Rebbe operates. In that reshame themselves, even though they have free will, but they are compelled against their will to be the very agents of the redemption process itself. In other words, even though Russia has Bechira, free will, but the Rebbe takes the consequences or the acts of that free will and makes sure that it itself is going to speed the messianic process and allow the universe, the creation, to have a tikkun. Thus, Lovin comes to deceive and winds up being duped himself by the Rabbanishlam in his conduct of Anhogus Yichud. That is the real profundity of the fact that Lovin himself is the one that is enabling Yaakov to marry Leah and therefore for the union of Ben Yosef to be transferred completely to Yaakov, thereby ensuring that the Meshichan are going to become part of Klai Yisrael and of course that there is going to be a Tikkun to the Bria. Let us continue. Now, after Yaakov marries Leah and then Rochel, Leah has four children, Reuven, Shimon, Levi and Yehuda. After Leah gives birth to Yehuda, the Torah says that she calls his name Yehuda because she says, now will I thank, now will I praise the Rabbani Shalom. Hapam, now or this time, Oideh is Hashem. I will praise, I will offer thanks to the Rabbani Shalom. So therefore Yehuda comes from Oideh to praise or to give thanks. It then says after that, Vatam me ledes, and she stopped bearing. After she gave birth to Yehuda, Vatam me ledes, she stopped bearing children. After it says, that Rochel was jealous of his sister, and Rochel was jealous of his sister because Rochel gave birth to no one, whereas, of course, uh, Leah gave birth to four children. And each of them wanted to have children. Each of them wanted to be the mother of the Shvatim. We may ask here three questions at this point. Why only after the fourth child was born does Leah give thanks and praise to the Rabbanu 
Why didn't she do this previously? Why now, after the fourth child, does she say, Hapam, now, this time, I will praise God. I will give thanks to Ramoshlam. And for the other three kids, she doesn't give thanks? What's the meaning? Now, Rashi says that the reason why she gave thanks only now and not before was because with a fourth child, she now had more than her share of the Shvatam than she was supposed to have. Why? Because there are four wives that are supposed to have 12 sons. Right? Rochel, Leah, Bila, and Zilpah. Four wives that are supposed to have 12 sons or 12 Shvatam. That would mean that each wife has to have three sons if it's distributed evenly. Since she now had a fourth son or fourth Shevet, she now was especially grateful to the Rabbanishim for giving her more than her share. This is what Rashi says. Therefore she says, now, Apam, now, with the fourth child, I will praise the Rabbanishim because he has given me more than my share. I was supposed to only have three, but now I have four. But this is really the Pshat in Nigla. The Pshat Nigla. What, however, is the inner meaning or the Pshat Nista in terms of why only now does she thank the Rabbanu Shalom. What is really going on? A second question is why now does she stop giving birth? It says, Vatamoid miledes, and she ceased, she stopped bearing or giving birth. Why all of a sudden now, after the fourth child? It's almost as if Leah had reached the essential son or Shavit and therefore could stop having children. It's almost as if she had reached a milestone, an objective, the main Shavit. And therefore now it was necessary to have more children or more shvatim. This is almost what it would seem. So the question of course is, why now does it say it by Tamoid Miledis? The third question is, why only now after the birth of Yehuda does the terrorist say that Rocha was jealous of Leah? Why now? Why wasn't Rochel jealous of Leah by the first, first three children? Now she first becomes jealous after the fourth child. After Reuben and Shimon she should have been jealous because she didn't have any kids. After the third child she should have been jealous because again she had no kids. Why now after the fourth child does the Torah first express why that, that Rochel was jealous? And Rochel was jealous of her sister. And of course then Rochel said to Yaakov, give me children because if not then I will die. And of course Yaakov answers that the Rabbanishim prevented her from having kids, and of course not him, because he had children with Leah. <clears throat> but the question is, <clears throat> why now does Rachel become jealous? And of course, again, according to the inner theme, the answers are really obvious. Because again, there's one inner theme that tells what this real story is going on, and therefore all these questions are really understood in accordance with that inner theme. I will answer that, these questions next week.